Hey, Facebook, it's Thursday, and um, I don't know about you, but I'm definitely tired. Uh, but I'm really excited about this discussion because we're finally talking with an amazing architect who has this idea about how we need to begin to design our buildings to improve our infection control. For us working in the industry with our older adults, design is everything. But now with COVID, it's amplified the importance of infection control. So stick with us while we hear a short message from Serenity Engage, our HIPAA compliant app that is once again powering our show. And we're back. I don't want to keep you away that long. Before we dive in, I'm going to introduce Taylor, who is kind of stepping in for Catherine Wells here. He's going to really help us out and uh, be the co-podcaster, co-host today. So Taylor, pleasure to have you on as well. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Francis, for having us. I'm super excited to dive into the conversation. Like you said, uh, building a building that works for the care model is super important. We're super excited to talk to Bill here. Um, and Bill, I'm going to have you, if you could introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here. Sure. Um, I'm an architect and um, I have focused on senior living for uh, 28 years. Um, and going back to grad school in the 90s, um, I um, had three fellowships to study assisted living at the time, which was brand new, mm -hmm. um, as well as memory care and what are the issues that people with dementia have and how can we um, design for those in a better way. Um, and so that's where sort of everything started for me at, at the University of Wisconsin. And then the last 28 years, 90% of my work has been mostly nonprofit um, senior living providers um, and really uh, trying to understand how they want to provide their care um, and what their sort of philosophies and ideas are and, and starting there and, and working forward. And then also what um, trying to understand as much as possible about what, um, what are the, the needs of the people who live there. Going back to your, you know, you said about 20 years ago, so that was what, early 90s, give or take, right? Um, was it still that kind of nursing home feel? Was that kind of that where we were in that development of, because I know, you know, last few years, I feel like it's been this resort style living, but we still kind of still lean back on some of that nursing home designer feel from the 90s. Is that kind of what you were focusing on? Or were you trying to push it to a different level here? So um, back then, um, basically, the, the one of the fellowships that I had was to uh, travel around the country and look at these new assisted living facilities okay. that were coming out hmm. uh, from Sunrise, um, architect Victor Rainier, who really sort of pioneered the assisted living model. So hmm. at that time, it was either your standard, you know, sort of cross-shaped uh, skilled nursing facility with no public spaces <laughs> or this new assisted living model. Um, so, um, now we're, um, you know, we're, I think in some ways we're beginning to come into a kind of new generation, um, that, that is really beginning to look a little bit more quality of life, um, and, uh, and not just the sort of hospitality aspect of it, but the, um, 
uh, kind of the masterpiece living, you know, that Roger Landry wrote this book, Live Long, Die Short. Yep. And a lot of it, and it was based on a MacArthur uh, Foundation study. A lot of it talked about um, the quality of your life and having meaning and purpose, having a lot to do with how long you lived and how well you lived. And so we're looking more and more at that, at how um, can our buildings now um, support um, places where people can do kind of real things right? Yep. Um, and, and connect with the community. I think that's critical. I mean, and Taylor, um, jump in here, you know, as well, too, is but I'm a big believer of this purpose built living, because a lot of times we see our older adults, they'll go into these these residences and lose their purpose, whatever that purpose may be, whether that's walking a dog or seeing grandkids or, you know, whatever, you know, purpose. So I think we have to get back to like purpose living, whether you're living for 100 years, 80, 70, you know, it's all about the purpose you have. And I know, um, you know, Taylor's big belief especially with people living with dementia that's a key element right is for them to be able to do the things they can do maybe a little bit differently but still do them that's awesome i love i like that idea bill i'm i'm curious on uh from an architect standpoint what have you seen with with this purpose built well the building has a purpose right so from an architect standpoint how do you see the quality of life affecting let me let me start over how do you see the quality of life affecting from an architect standpoint? Um, well, so some of it I think has to do with um, can you, especially if you're if you're building campus, mm -hmm. can you make a place that people from the outside world want to come to mm. um, and 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 hang out and um, and it it. I think it varies greatly with the project, the scope of the project and the location. Um, so we did a project in Jackson, Wyoming and Jackson's a pretty small town. Right. Um, there, there's more elk than people. In Jackson. <laughs> and um, so we, um, the project's still under construction. Uh, so we'll see how it works, but um, it was assisted living, memory care, skilled nursing neighborhoods. And there was a, a town center in the middle where everybody uh, could could come together. And in that town center, we had a cafe that um, was actually going to be run by a, a, a local vendor. Oh, you know, cool! A, 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 a couple that the, at that time that, mm -hmm. that were going to um, run this coffee shop, and it was going to be. And the thing about the setting in Jackson is you were you were literally on the edge of the Elk Refuge. Wow. So you sit in this coffee shop with this deck out and look out at 20,000 elk. That's cool. Uh, but in addition to that, this town, um, I mean, Jackson has a lot going for it for a town of 10,000 people. Um, but we also had an, a, a small event center and a um, art center, a, a music and art center in it. Um, I mean, these sound bigger than they are, but... Um, so we were able to try to put things in this building that would attract people from the community and that mm -hmm. could be this kind of common ground because it can be, you know, can be kind of uncomfortable if somebody comes to a setting to see their mom or their sister and there's kind of nothing to do. Right. Anymore. So are you almost kind of creating a community within a community, basically, right? You're, you're trying to create this, I'd say, I don't want to say village, but 
these areas that are more traditional feel to them, right? Yet they still support the older adults and the grandkid can have something to do or the, the sister or brother, right? They can have something else to do besides just sit in dad's room or mom's room, basically. Right, right. And then um, there's this, the, the circulation, the main circulation, this main space is this kind of gallery and it had two things in it. Um, Memories in the Making Art, or it will have, um, and then also um, sort of portraits, uh, visual and, and literary portraits of um, famous people in the town and their connections with people in the facility. So uh, if anybody's a skier, Doug Coombs' father was in this facility. Doug Coombs wow. is like, you know, was. Um, and so there was a, you know, there was going to be a story about him and, and um, about the connection there. So we were trying to make it like a, um, a, a way to also say um, these people that live here have roots in this community and have been important members in the community. Mm-hmm. And when you guys designed it, if I heard right, you designed both assisted living, a skilled nursing component and a memory care component or just or and then independent as well too there. And no independent, no okay. independent. It was all, um, there were four neighborhoods. It was actually assisted, skilled, memory, and then a small rehab component. Oh, wow. Um, so in a lot of ways was meant for younger people because there's a lot of people that have skiing accidents, uh, climbing accidents uh, in that area, and they need, um, you know, seven days of rehab after surgery right. or something. So when you guys designed that, um, you know, obviously COVID right now, infection control is really big and, and the idea of private rooms are really important or are shown to become important. So did you guys, how do you balance that out between like cost and shared room and some of the, you know, cost things yet privates for infection control are really important now or showing that they are important, I should say. Right. Um, in this setting, we were lucky enough to be able to have all private rooms. Okay. Some were smaller and some were bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so that's the ideal. If you okay. can do that. And and when I was writing that, that uh, white paper on infection control, um, we were visiting a few facilities that were talking about wanting to make some changes. And I was with an engineer and we were talking about all these things we were going to do. And then the uh, executive director of this one place said, well, this is going to be a semi-private room. And the engineer looked at me and said, well, we might as well not do any of this stuff. Um, Uh, It's a big, if you've got people um, next to each other sleeping, using the same bathroom, it's really challenging to really, I mean, in in essence, I think you make your own little bubble, little two-person bubble. Right. Um, but but it is a challenge because, you know, I know that the reimbursement rates don't really support that. Um, and that's kind of what I was getting at. Right. Is is the, there's the financial component. There's the infection control component. It's, it's kind of I don't know. It's an interesting dilemma we're in right now with how COVID has shown that infection control design matters. Right. How we're thinking about this, like. Flu and noro have always been a concern in pneumonia this time of year, right? That's just normal in our type of industry. But now you throw in COVID, which we're learning something new every day about it. Our industry has been built on trying to keep costs as low as possible in some components, right? 
So it's just kind of figure out how we blend that financially because we're having more and more people that need some type of assistance financially to provide, pay for the long-term care. Right, right. Um, I, I mean, it, it, it is a challenge and, and we have designed rooms that, um, uh, for instance, there's, you have your own private bedroom, but you share a bathroom. Mm. And, you know, a lot of it, it, it gets down to funny things like where do people wash their hands? Where does the caregiver wash their hands? Yeah. Um, in, in we, this was before COVID when, when we designed the project in Jackson, mm-hmm. but um, we had set up a hand washing station right next to the door for the staff. Oh, cool. And, um, I mean, some of the things that I've been talking about with, with other professionals is for senior living, a lot of it has to do with how well you support the staff to be able to be safe. Okay. Uh, because uh, especially when you get to memory care, it's pretty difficult to direct behavior or to meaningfully explain what's happening and, and you know why this is important. So if you can support the staff, the staff are the people that um, come in contact with everybody throughout the day. Correct. And that's a good way to put it. And I know, I don't know, maybe we can touch on this. It might be a little off topic, but I've been reading more about people are talking about putting different UV type lights in there to help keep the virus down and, you know, re-looking at HVAC systems and filtration stuff. Um, I know almost nothing about that. I mean, the UV makes sense from, you know, virus and stuff, but what is that key components here that we need to be talking about is looking at our HVAC systems, looking at our lighting types that we have? Um, there, there are, um, less expensive and more expensive things you can do with the HVAC system. Um, and some of the stuff is pretty, we're, I can't, we're using a system in this affordable housing project that, um, is just a sort of add on to the mechanical system and it Mm -hmm. cleans the air before it puts it out. Um, but you know, one thing we have going for us with, um, the way the um, the state, in particular, regu- um, their building codes, you know, they make us divide the, the building or the, even the neighborhood into smoke compartments to stop the transfer of smoke. Um, well, those are essentially potentially um, isolation compartments. Um, so, I mean, one thing that we've been talking about is maybe a neighborhood of 16, the state, the codes, the fire codes require that to be two compartments. They're basically invisible uh, separation, but maybe you think about that really being three or four. uh, And you can segregate the building. You've got the the basic separation of the mechanical systems is there already. Gotcha. Huh. So, so speaking of that kind of codes and stuff, um, you know, can you kind of just talk a little more high level on what are FGI codes? What does that mean or guidelines? And then what are also the life safety guidelines? Because I know we're going to get a lot of questions just in general about what that type of stuff is. So with um, assisted living and skilled nursing, once you are providing a service that's licensed by the state, then um, a whole nother layer of building codes comes into play. Um, you've always got the, the city um, building codes. The, the, the city adopts the IBC usually mm-hmm. building code. You've always got that. Um, and then if you um, provide a licensed service like assisted living or skilled nursing or memory care, then you've got the codes that the, co- that the state 
uh, relies on, mm-hmm. and that's um, the uh, life safety code for the Division of Fire Prevention and Control. And then the um, CDPHE mm-hmm. also has the FGI guidelines. Got you right. And, and the FGI guidelines, um, for the most part, they are smart things that you would do anyways. Mm. Um, and for the most part, a lot of the guidelines are, are are really simple. You know, things like every room must have a light. <laughs> okay. The challenge is, is that you have to write a document that says, yes, we do have a light. And yes, we do have. Have we gotten that far away from common sense? We need to put that in the design code? <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the things begin to talk about infection control um. and how you um, keep a really sanitary environment, things like that. Some of the, a lot of those things are really great. Right. Um, but it does add a kind of layer of bureaucracy. But I, I will say the state here. It is fantastic about working with you and, and explaining good. how those things work. So, how do you go ahead? Go ahead, Taylor. Go ahead, Taylor. No, how do you how do you anticipate the codes changing now with COVID, or do you anticipate any changes coming down with those codes with infection control and things like that? You know, I um, I, it, I it just it's just a hunch that I think they will. I think that they will evolve. I haven't. Um, the, the, the poor people at CDPHE have been so overwhelmed, as you can imagine, that um, I haven't wanted to bother them and have a <laughs> terrible conversation. Please but, don't. Um, I, feel I would free. guess that there's going to be some other layers um, of um, code or a whole other section. Interesting. Uh, I mean, there already is are infection control things, but those will probably be revamped. And so to build on that, how, how have you changed your practices as an architect and how you design infection control for these senior living facilities and buildings um, in response to COVID? Um, well, so some of it begins with the planning of the building, especially if you're doing a new building. And, and, and it, it's a very much a back and forth with the owner and the um, key staff people. Um, what are their thoughts about it? How far down the line do they want to go? Um, so there are planning things about sort of seg- allowing the building to be segregated and um, trying to provide all or mostly private units. Um, and then, there, as you said, there's the mechanical um, uh, ventilation things. Um, but there's also a lot of things about choosing materials, not only cleanable materials, but um you know, things, I had a long talk with a door hardware specialist. Hmm. Um, believe it or not, those are required for projects. So door hardware is like its own science. And huh. he was saying that, you know, if if you specify bronze hardware that doesn't have a finish, doesn't have a coating on it, it's really copper that makes the color and copper kills viruses. Oh, geez. Yeah, so there's a lot of, and then then there are new product, brand new products out there that are amazing. The office that I'm sitting in right now, this whole complex, we have these um, nanoseptic sleeves on all of the door handles that uh, kill viruses. Yeah. I didn't even know those existed. Yeah. Neither did I. And that's an interesting point about copper as well, too. So, So, yeah, it is definitely thinking about those design aspects prior to even starting a project or even considering when you're doing rehab. Right. Right. And a lot of it, a lot of it is really um, working with the staff 
the key staff people and, and just kind of going through, okay, what is your day like? Um, and, you know, where do you want these places to be able to wash your hands? Right. Um, do you, you know, there's some talk about maybe um, staff should be able to come in and out of residence bathrooms without going into the resident room. Um, so that they can provide new supplies and, and all those sorts of things and not have to be in contact with the resident or they could go into the bathroom, wash their hands and then go see the resident. There's secret doors. We're talking like secret doors behind bookcases. And, oh. you know, yeah. <laughs> Waving your hand and magically it opens up and you disappear into the wall. So yeah, I like it. I like it. Right. I like it. right. Well, the, when I talked to the door guy, um, he was saying the best thing is to have, you know, doors that you don't even have to touch. Oh yeah. yeah, you know those are those are wonderful, but unbelievably expensive. And that's the problem, I guess, too. Is like we, I mean, I feel like we're getting this. We have like this technology that's available to make things more efficient. But when you factor that in to what you almost have to charge per month, it's like where you have where do you balance that out? Like how do you balance out? using the right stuff, but then also not having to charge 10 grand a month just to break even. Right. I mean, it's because your most expensive part and your most critical part, I think is your staff. Right. And so you need great staff around you, but you also need that design of the building to be helpful too. So it's, and I feel like we're kind of in this really weird tipping point disruption here and in finding that sweet spot, right. Between proper design materials and staffing and all that stuff. Right. Right. Well, it does, you know, um, it does suggest in some ways that smaller is better. Um, you, you know, there, there's an economy of scale. Right. Um, that drives up, you know, before long, if you, if, if you, you can have a facility of, you know, 90 memory care residents. Right. Um, but, um, you know, you think about how if you have a small little bubble of 16 or something, it's kind of a lot easier to deal with. Or if you have a campus that has four of those or six right. of those. They're broken up in their own little pods, basically, or segregated. Yeah, it's a good right. point. I know, I'm a big believer. Or segregated Berkeley. You know, um, years ago, I did a competition for uh, the greenhouse, yeah. Eden Alternative, yeah. where that was the deal. How can we stack? If you're in an urban setting or a setting where land is expensive, Maybe you can't have four greenhouses spread out. Maybe you stack them, and how do you make that work? Oh, that's a cool idea. It's a really good I, 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 I'm a big believer of, of smaller is better just because I think you can give more staff attention to the residents, but also you're not having to have 50 other older adults that are around each other that can co-mingle and co-spread things, right? Right. Um, but it just – I don't know. I just – I feel like we need to almost put – what we think of design is on its head and just kind of start almost from scratch a little bit. And uh, some of the stuff you're talking about is, I mean, is really cool. I think of, you know, I don't know. I think we're at a very unique spot here in senior living where we're going to have opportunities to have a huge impact on like the next 20 years. Like the designs we have today, I don't think they're going to be here much longer because of people like you, they're like, hold on, time out. Let's look at infection control. Let's look at materials. Let's look at this and that, which is going to be really exciting. Uh, aging, I think. Well, and and some of those things go hand in hand with um, some things that you might think about infection control go hand in hand with just better design and better places for people to live. Um, you know, if you if you have a private room, 
that's a lot better than if you have a semi-private room, that's for sure. Um, and if you have kind of more common space, more space for people to kind of spread out, um, it makes for a better place to live. So um, I, I, I don't think that these things necessarily conflict. Right. Know? There may be a price tag to some of it, but um, I don't think it has to be. Um, what, what we don't want to do is end up redesigning nursing homes that are like hospitals. No. Right? no. That would be an easy thing to do, a knee-jerk reaction. And next thing you know, we're like, what happened? We're back at an institutional model. No. Uh, so we, I think we have to be sort of wary of that. It's a good point. It's a really good point. And I think that's the that's my fears too. Is I don't want us to I want us to be logical in our approach here and really tackle that challenge head on, but also not panic so much and be like, oh, we're just gonna go back to what we know work and that's just pure clinical institutional model. Like that's what we're doing. Right. Right. Oh. Yeah, that, that's the that's the, the fear, the dangers that we could go back. I mean, that's where we began. Really, nursing homes were hospitals, um, and we've come so far, and we shouldn't let this throw us off. We, we need to pay attention to it, but it doesn't have to um, be something that makes us retreat. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I like that approach. I think people like you are going to have to keep you know, speaking up and, and talking about the change, because I do think for a lot of providers, what they continue to do is just easy, right? You're not having to challenge yourself, you know, building the same model you've had since the late nineties. Like we know this is our building model, four story structure, hundred beds, just keep building it. Right. 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 Um, and, and the thing, the, the thing that's, it's easy to do that and it's fast, but um, an empty unit costs more than um, an extra month of design. You know, an extra unit for a long time or a failing facility. And I, I do think that um, that we're going to see pushback to the really big um, kind of resort like places to a certain extent, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, that's going to be interesting. Uh, Rook, I want to ask kind of a little another off topic before we dive in. We want to know who your maverick is uh, in your life. But before that, what do you think would happen if you had a two, three story senior living facility that didn't fill up? I mean, what would you think we'd turn into apartments or what do you think would happen? That didn't fill up? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I've I've been in that situation where where an owner comes to me and says, you know, we've got this vacant wing and we right. can't fill it up, and it's it it always seems to be, is there another care level? Should we turn this into memory care? Should we okay. turn this into skilled okay. uh, rehab? Um, should we make it specialized? Um, uh, you, you know, I work with others that aren't seniors that have serious, uh, mostly cognitive. Problems, uh, people with autism, for yeah. instance. I just mm -hmm. did a school for kids with autism, and um, there are going to be a lot of those people. There are going to be a lot of a, young adults um, with autism, uh, older people with Downs that, mm. that used to live that long that now do. Gotcha. Uh, I have a nephew who just passed away at, not a nephew, a, a cousin at 80 who had Downs. People wow. never used to live to be 80 with Downs. No. So there may be all these little special niches too, I think. Um, and it would it seems nice if there's the potential 
to bring different age groups together. I, it, you have to do that in the right way. Um, but, um, it, it, you know, it could, I think there, there's potential there. It's such an opportunity that we have people like you, Bill, that are, that are, they can see the whole picture, not only the design of the building, the codes, the safety, the infection control, but you're also seeing the type of care that the person needs, whether that be memory, Down syndrome, whatever it may be, you're, you're looking at the entire picture and how can we support the care and the infection control and balance those things? Well, I'm, I'm trying. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, re I had the experience about eight months ago now of staying overnight in a memory care facility that I designed um, or I designed the remodel. And um, that was an incredible learning experience. So this was a skilled level memory care. So a lot of, most people were nonverbal. Um, and wow, I mean, the biggest thing I learned is, oh my gosh, the staff works so hard, it's unbelievable. Uh, they're just working 24 seven hard. Um, Absolutely. They finish one thing and they go on to the next. And, um, it, but, but, you know, I took away some things to think about. I, I, they actually fitted me for a wheelchair. I was in a wheelchair the whole time. Um, and um, it, it, it was a great learning experience. That's awesome. Wow. Helps you support the staff, like you said before, when, when you talked about putting sinks right outside the resident room to wash your hands right after you're done performing care or what have you, you know, really supporting the staff that support the residents. Through the right. design. And, and you can do that in a, in a way that is really sort of normalized and, um, right by the on the inside of the unit by the door. Um, and it doesn't have to feel like, oh, this is some weird clinical thing. You know? Right. 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 Yeah. Taking all of that into account in the design. Well, Bill, I'm going to move on to our question here. Um, who do you consider to be a maverick in your life and why? Um, I would say Oliver Sacks, the late Oliver Sacks, um, was somebody that um, whose books I loved and the way of thinking, um, and you know he was a, a neuroscientist. And as his career went on, he began to understand that there were other aspects to people's lives that um, had anything from closed head trauma to dementia. And he was finding ways to communicate. He was really one of the mavericks of music therapy for people with dementia or um, cognitive disorders. And um, I, so I, 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 I think that he's somebody that sort of crossed the bridge between science and, and um, quality. That's cool. Yeah, music therapy we know is just now a big uh, you know, opportunity to really enhance the people's lives that live with dementia. And we use that on a regular basis because it's just so great. So I didn't know that about Oliver Sacks, though. I was really, it's really interesting um, to, to learn that about his history. Yeah. So uh, Musicophilia is uh, his book about music therapy. Oh. And, um, you know, he, he's got people that, uh, um, that he studies that are so far down the road in dementia that, you know, one of the stories is called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And he works with music therapy with this guy and has cool. some success. I mean, not, not curing success, right. but quality of life success. Right. Very cool. Absolutely. Very cool. Very cool. Another big thing, obviously, with us is we want to always talk about action. So for our listeners, our viewers, what action would you challenge them to take? 
Um, I, I think I think we are at a, a great turning point, and I think that um, thinking about um, the, the, uh, of all um, one of my favorite movies is a Woody Allen movie, um, Manhattan, and, and Woody Allen was a great director and his personal stuff was kind of off the charts. Um, but um, there's this great scene in Manhattan where he's writing this book and he um, asks himself, what makes life worth living? And I think that that is, when you think about the residents, this is their last six or 12 or 24 months on earth. And I think just sort of living in a resort doesn't really make, there's no meaning in that. And so I think that there's, whether it's art or music or writing or being with your family or um, nature, I think that there are, um, I think that's something we should really embrace. I think a lot of people are, um, but what would make life worth living for this resident? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's powerful. That's really powerful because I think really yeah, specific action to take to asking asking yourself that question if you are in in senior care anywhere in your life, what makes life worth living? Great question to ask. Right. Not and now you act ask, but I, I act upon it, right? I mean, if you find something mm -hmm. that they like, do it, right? Try. I mean, you know, we've tried to think outside the box. If you got a gentleman who loves to work with his hands and used to maybe take cars apart, find things that they can do that, you know, carburetors or whatever, you know, go maybe even take them to an auto, you know, mechanic shop and see if they can do something there safely, of course. But I think that's what we got to get to, right? Is those little personalized touches. Right. right. That back and it, residents. It, yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and sometimes it involves taking a little risk. Yes. And it's easy for me to say I'm sitting here drawing, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, I think sometimes it does taking a person out in to feel snow falling on their face, stuff like that. Um, I know for me, man, I want to be able to be connected with the outdoors in some yeah. way, you know. And I will tell you, I believe the biggest challenge we have right now to doing these things is 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 what I call the bubble wrap a lot of families want around their older adult. Mm -hmm. And I think it then ties back into the litigation component for a lot of facilities. Like I think that we need to be pushing our older adults to do the things that they want to do within reason, but acknowledging that if your dad with dementia wants to go fly fishing in the mountains, he could hurt himself. Right. I'm going to have the best time ever. So <laughs> don't sue the facility because your dad got hurt going fly fishing because you're mad at the facility, right? That right. Dad, no, your dad had the best, whatever, four hours of his day, probably since he's been there because he was outside. Right. Right. Yeah. It, 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 it really starts to step back to a whole cultural thing about what are our expectations and, and um, what are the family's expectations and, and um, what are they willing to Take a risk, a small risk. I mean, we're we're talking about the risk that somebody might fall or something. Correct. Right. 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 But I think too, and Taylor um, works with Serenity now. Uh, one of the big things that we've been about is 
setting the expectations before they move in, right? So that the family knows what they're going to get. We know what, what everything's going to be. And I think that's often lost, right? Is we need to be more forthcoming with what our expectations are of family members, as well as us as providers, so that we set that table and get everything started on the right foot. Right. I think that's what's so important is because I'd love to take some of our older adults out to do things they've always wanted to try or do. But some of the families like, I don't know if that seems a little risky. Well, yes, it is. But <laughs> right. What's the point if, if you're yeah, if you're just going to be bubble wrapped in a in a, a room, what's the point? It's, uh, I think it transcends setting expectations too. It's it's connection, really. It's just solidifying a connection between the care staff and the family through through risk-taking or minimizing risk, making sure we can take your dad fly fishing, but right. he's gonna be as safe as we can we can make it. Right. You know, we're right. gonna get as creative as we can. So that connection, that's one amazing thing that I saw when I did this um, stay over was the staff was so connected to the residents and they knew the residents couldn't commute. Most of them couldn't communicate very well at all. And the staff knew what was going on. In fact, during dinner, there was a resident next to me that was completely nonverbal in a um, wheelchair and he was making some sounds and gestures and, and it was clear that he was unhappy. And one of the staff came over and was with him for a minute and realized he wanted to go outside wanted to go out to the patio and mm -hmm. so she brought him out there and he was happy as a clam and I thought how on earth did she understand that's what he wanted and I think that's what we don't give enough credit though is the staff if we can reduce the turnover and the staff can spend more time with our with those living with dementia they know their idiosyncrasies they know kind of their little nuances and what that means that's everything yeah yeah it displays the power that that of the connection with the family too, because if the care staff can be connected with the family and can show that little moment to them that they do, they can, and they do connect with their loved one and they know them just as well as anyone else. They know they can, they want to go outside when they, when they make that specific sound or what have you, right. Um, that connection, that expectation setting is so, it's so important. So, yeah. We honestly could keep talking all day because uh, <laughs> you are no, but now that because you're a wealth of knowledge, and I like. I mean, to me, it's refreshing because I, you know, I got into this about 11 years ago now because my grandfather had dementia, my other grandfather had Parkinson's, and I just felt we were stuck. Like we just haven't had any cool breakthroughs of what we, you know, how we want aging to be. Um, and but obviously, every time we get together and chat, you always bring up some awesome ideas and stuff. So. Um, it's a well, lot of fun. pleasure to be here. This is this is a really great program. So how um can um I'm gonna put some stuff up. Is this the best way your your website of Brumbed Architects um and then your email the best way for people to connect with you and contact you to learn more? Yeah, that's probably the best way to connect with me. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, but it, you know I, I tend to get really busy and forget to look at LinkedIn as we all do. <laughs> you're never you're not busy. What are you talking about? You got nothing going on. <laughs> So, well, um, Bill, a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for what you do. Um, we truly appreciate your approach and, you know, the out of the box and the way you're challenging us operators and, you know, other designers to do things a little differently, to have a bigger impact on the purpose of people's lives. So thank you very much for that. Well, great. Thank you guys too. It's been, it's been fun. It's been, um, I've learned a lot during this conversation.
Oh, great. Well, good. I'm glad. Thanks, well, thanks. Bill. And then, everybody, enjoy your uh, rest of your Thursday and have a wonderful weekend until next Thursday. We'll talk to you soon. All right.